This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Venezuela is uh, not exactly in good shape. Honestly, if we go back and look at Venezuela's history, it really is terrifying because it wasn't that long ago that Venezuela, which possesses the world's largest crude oil reserves, was a relatively stable democracy with one of Latin America's fastest rising economies. We are talking about a nation that was so awash in petroleum revenues that the socialist government of the late former president Hugo Chavez would spend huge amounts of money on social programs and at one point was even providing free heating oil for impoverished Americans. Yes, my friends, I know what that sounds like. If it comes as a bit of a surprise to you, I am sure that it will for many, but in the early to mid-2000s, Venezuela's heating oil program would provide a one-time heating oil delivery of 100 gallons to low-income Americans and would donate 45 million gallons or more than $100 million worth of heating oil to more than 200,000 families across 23 states in 2007 alone. And that, my friends, was the third year that they did it. And for the people who were receiving this oil from Venezuela, they didn't exactly care about where it came from. They only cared that they got it. At the same time that all this was going down, Hugo Chavez was calling U.S. President Bush the devil in an address to the UN, and Bush, meanwhile, would cheer any time the Venezuelans tried to limit whatever Hugo Chavez was doing within his government and would fail some kind of referendum. It was uh, definitely a little bit of a weird time to be alive. But then, only a few years later, the luck of Venezuela would start to go south, metaphorically speaking. Because starting around the year 2014, the South American nation would begin suffering an almost startling and complete collapse with Venezuela's gross domestic product plummeting even more than the United States had during the Great Depression, with many of its nearly 32 million inhabitants becoming unable to afford food, and resource-starved hospitals did not have enough soap or antibiotics or basically any other kind of product that would be needed. And meanwhile, Venezuela's political system was just turning into complete chaos. The guy that you can see behind me here, Nicolas Maduro, he is the individual that would take over after Hugo Chavez, and he would face his own issues, including a lot of political irregularities regularities, to say the least, within his government. And after what was more than likely an exceptionally unfair election that he won, he would manage to survive a coup in 2019 that overthrew his government and then quickly be reinstated. The resulting crisis would ultimately drive millions of people out of Venezuela in search of the most basic goods, from food, better living conditions, work opportunities, anything beyond its borders in order to try and escape, millions of people would leave the country in order to do so. As of early August of 2023, over 7.7 million million Venezuelans were residing outside of their home country. And that number, my friends, is only set to grow. So the question at this point becomes, well, how did we get here? Well, my friends, you know exactly how we do things on this channel. Before we go and cover modern geopolitics, the thing that we're going to have to do is go back and look at the history first. So let's dive into it. Naturally speaking, because we are talking about a new world country, it is something that we are going to end up skipping over quite a number of details. But to fast forward through time, for centuries, the indigenous people of Venezuela would live by farming, but also hunting and fishing. Then everything would change in 1498 when Christopher Columbus would attack. 
Yes, I know that sounds bad, but 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know exactly how the rhyme goes. He ends up being the first person to reach Venezuela. Then, if we fast forward by a year, 1499, there is a Spaniard by the name of Alonso de Ojeda who leads another expedition to the area. And it is actually he who would name Venezuela, Venezuela, and the reason he gave it that name is because the name means Little Venice, and after seeing a whole bunch of huts that were on stilts at the time, he's like, yes, yeah, this is, um... This is Venice. Other explorers would gradually then come to the area and would see locals who were wearing ornaments that were made of gold. And from this, you'd have, naturally speaking, because we're talking about the Spanish, many different stories that would begin to spread around, providing the basis for the legendary myth of El Dorado. God, I love that movie. And so naturally speaking, because we were talking about the potential of massive amounts of gold and wealth, people began to flock to Venezuela as well as Colombia, specifically hoping to search for their own form of legendary wealth, leading to rapid colonization. And in some areas, people would find it. The opening of gold mines at Yaracuy would lead to the introduction of slavery, at first with the indigenous population being used much in the same way as the Spanish would use them in other parts of the empire, and then when those would, over time, gradually die out or not be as useful, then they would start to import in large numbers of Africans. But unlike the greater mineral wealth of what we would see with Colombia and Peru and other territory, Venezuela didn't really have any of that. No, the real success for the colony wouldn't really come until it started focusing on the raising of livestock, which, for the longest time would dominate its economy before it got into more cash crops. And so with not really much gold, not really all that much minerals, not many things that the Spanish necessarily cared about, over the course of the 16th and 17th centuries, the provinces of what today constitutes Venezuela were relatively neglected. The viceroyalties of New Spain and Peru were significantly more interested in their nearby gold and silver mines than in agricultural Venezuela, so it didn't really matter to them. Then in the 18th century, a second Venezuelan society would form along the coast when when cocoa plantations were established, manned by large-scale importations of African slaves. And finally, it is here that we're starting to get somewhere with Venezuela as an idea of its own independent entity, and not just some agricultural backwater. Because for the longest time, Venezuela was under different geographical rule. And by that, I mean that, yes, of course, it was controlled by Spain, but simultaneously, even on the local level, there wasn't a Venezuelan government that things were centralized under. Instead, such as in 1717, it was under the control of New Granada. But as it grew larger in 1777, it was transformed into the Captaincy General of Venezuela. Now, we are really starting to get somewhere. And where they were going was really a desire for independence. Because the Venezuelans began to grow more restive under colonial control towards the end of the 18th century. The Napoleonic Wars in Europe had weakened Spain's imperial power, and the Venezuelans would achieve home rule after a coup on April 19, 1810, and then subsequently declare independence from Spain on July 5, 1811. What would follow would be the Venezuelan War of Independence. And on December 17, 1819, the Congress of Angostura would establish Gran Colombia's independence from Spain. After several more years, which from this time killed off half of Venezuela, Venezuela's white population, the country would finally achieve independence from Spain in 1821 under the leadership of one of its most famous individuals to ever exist, Simón Bolívar. Now, if you don't know this guy's story, you should definitely check out the podcast episode that I did on him because, my God, is it a wild one? But yes, he would create the state of Gran Colombia. And that, I have to say right there, would be an interesting alternate history video. What if Gran Colombia had actually survived? Now, obviously, it didn't, as we're talking about the history of Venezuela as a country and considering the other countries that we've already mentioned 
mentioned that were a part of it. Yeah, this was um this was not something that ended up actually lasting. But really at the time, no one expected just how fast it was going to fall. I mean, here we are talking about a country in 1821 that people genuinely anticipated across the world that this was going to be the next United States, or in this case, the United States of South America. And the potential was there, but the reality of the situation is that the new state of Gran Colombia simply proved to be too difficult and big to actually manage. The only thing that really unified the country was Simon Bolivar, and even then, he had so many factors within his own government of all the varying peoples, different cultures that were constantly resisting him, that it wasn't really anything that he could do to bind them all together into one state. The country would exist for only around a decade before it would subsequently be divided into three other countries, Venezuela being one of them. Now, I'm not going to get into this next part very heavily. For that, we would need a full video on Venezuela's history. But for a century afterwards, once Gran Colombia had actually fallen, despite its true independence, Venezuela would come under a series of military dictatorships. Oil was then discovered in the country in the early 20th century, and this would greatly help the economy and would allow Venezuela to pay off its foreign debt. And this is a good thing. But while oil certainly benefited the nation in many ways, simultaneously, that wealth was very rarely distributed to the average citizen in this day and age. The first half of the 20th century that would follow would be marked by periods of authoritarianism, this including the dictatorships by General Juan Vicente Gomez from 1908 to 1935, and this was simultaneously when Venezuela would become a major oil exporter for the world. Over time then, following decades of rocky leadership by different dictators and military juntas, an individual by the name of Romulo Betancourt would be elected president in 1958. This being the individual who would be known as the father of Venezuelan democracy. Now, Bentecourt would oversee the 1963 election, which would then usher in the first democratic civilian-to-civilian transfer of power, something that we have mentioned in previous episodes is a pretty big deal, considering a number of African countries. And for the next three decades, Venezuela would effectively ride the boom-and-bust cycle of global oil prices under civilian democratic rule. Elections would be limited to competition between the two main political parties through an early 1960s system known as Puntofismo, and corruption within the government was a major, major problem. And this is where one of the biggest characters of this entire story comes into play, Hugo Chavez. Now, Chavez definitely is an interesting person because he was an individual that was strongly influenced by the revolutionary that we talked about before, Simon Bolivar. And he was a military officer that would go and establish the leftist revolutionary Bolivarian movement 200 within the army. The movement that we're talking about would borrow heavily from Bolivar's belief in a unified Latin America. But also, simultaneously, it would draw inspiration from the leftist Peruvian military junta of the 1970s. And as a teacher at the Military Academy of Venezuela, Chavez over time would gain a very strong reputation for giving rousing lectures and pointed criticism of the Venezuelan government. He would then travel around the country to try and recruit new members for his political movement, and that is where we're going to start to run into some problems. Because in February of 1989, riots would shake the city of Caracas. Venezuela's economy is something that is known today as a highly unstable force, and for many people, they think that that is a recent thing, but that is really not the case. We've already talked about before about the boom and bust cycle, and what President Carlos Andres Perez would implement in the 1980s to try and combat this is a series of free market reforms, the so-called Washington Consensus, something that was an attempt to try and solve Venezuela's economic crisis. Later that month, Venezuelans would riot against a massive increase in gas prices, and under presidential order, the country's security forces would then brutally put down that uprising. This is something that would become known as the Caracazo, or the Caracas Smash. 
which to be honest sounds like an extremely awful wrestling move, but it was not going to be good for a large number of people. The government at the time would report 275 deaths that would occur, but the majority of people, and in particular the media, strongly disagree with that number, saying that the number was rather in the thousands than the hundreds. The riots, and then the subsequent military crackdown, would have a very strong polarizing effect upon society. The image of Venezuela being this harmonious, functional democratic state where everything was fine and dandy, well, that, that was gone. And because of that, Chavez would start to attract large numbers of new recruits to his movement, the Bolivarian Revolutionary Movement 200. And eventually, they would be ready to strike. Following the events that we've been talking about, two separate coups would take place that would be attempted by Chavez, and then afterwards his supporters, with the first one end up landing Chavez in jail, and he would remain there through the second coup all the way until he was released from jail in 1994. The coups may have failed, but simultaneously, because of how he handled it, it made him an immensely popular figure among the Venezuelan people. So much so, that only a few short years after getting released from prison in 1994, he would end up achieving victory in the 1998 presidential election for Venezuela. And from there, he would embark on a new program that he was going to call 21st Century Socialism. Now, before I embarked on creating this video, one of the comments that I repeatedly got was to please not use this opportunity as a slam dunk moment against socialism. And so for all of you watching right now, yeah, I'm not going to be doing that. I'm not a person that is here to tell you the right and wrong about what kind of economic or political thought that you should believe. But simultaneously, to not talk about socialism here would be to deny a massive part of Chavez's legacy. And so we are going to have to dive into it, both the good and the bad, and see where Venezuela really started to crumble. Because over the course of the next decade and a half, Chavez would embark on a massive social spending binge, the so-called Bolivarian missions, things that were specifically designed to boost public support and help the country. But when it comes to politics, this is something that kind of goes hand in hand. Run by various government bodies and ministries, the missions would provide adult literacy programs, they would offer free community health care to impoverished communities, they would construct low-income housing for the poor, and they would subsidize food and other consumer goods. I mean, the public health clinics that we're talking about here, many of these were run by Cuban doctors. And these are things that for many different countries and places around the world, they would win praise from the international community. And while some would criticize the programs as being very inefficient and corrupt, the Venezuelan government would report that there were significant increases in literacy and, at the same time, reductions in people's poverty levels. Considering what had been going on in the previous years, the actions that Chavez would take during this time would improve the lives of not just several thousand, but millions upon millions of people within Venezuela, drastically raising the standard of living within the country. But just like all things within socialism, these were still things that needed to be paid for. And how was Venezuela to do it? Well, the answer is oil. The short of it is that in order to finance all of these different educational programs, these health programs, food and housing programs, for a population of over 30 million people, that was going to require a lot of funds, and the government would have to redirect oil profits in order to address these pressing social inequalities. The Chavez-era social programs would significantly reduce poverty, but simultaneously, it would drastically increase the country's dependence upon oil. But that is a problem that we're going to be getting into later. Because even as the lives of the people within Venezuela improved, the safety, security, and stability of the political system within the country would, from this time, enter a steady decline. Because at the same time that all of this was going down, after enacting a new constitution with ample human rights protections in 1999, things would only get worse from there. Chavez and his followers would move to concentrate their power within the government. They would seize control of the Supreme Court, and from this, undercut the ability of journalists, of human rights, 
rights defenders and any other Venezuelans to actually exercise the fundamental rights that were supposed to be protected. By his second full term in office, the concentration of power and the erosion of human rights projections had given the government effectively free reign to intimidate, censor, or prosecute Venezuelans who criticized the president or caused issues within his political agenda. Then in the year 2004, Chavez and his followers in the National Assembly would carry out a political takeover of Venezuela's Supreme Court, adding 12 seats to what before had been a 20-seat tribunal, and instead of having these be like general elections or anything like that, they instead filled them with government supporters. In packing the Supreme Court, the court ceased to function as any kind of check on presidential power. No longer were its justices going to respect the principle of separation of powers. Instead, the court would serve merely as a tool to commit to advancing Chavez's political agenda. Fast forward to the year 2006, and Chavez would once again win re-election with 63% of the vote. Subsequently, after his victory, he would then announce the desire to create a single political party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, or PSUV, and would seek to combine all of the different support that he had from multiple other parties into one mega party in order to beat any other coalition. The very next year, he would start off 2007 with a new mandate that was passed by the National Assembly which at the time was almost wholly controlled by people that would be Chavistas, individuals that were in support of Hugo Chavez. He would replace most of his cabinet. He would announce the nationalization of the telecom and electricity industries, as well as the central bank, and simultaneously cancel the broadcast license of the private media company RCTV. Really, anything that could potentially disagree with him, he went and removed. Simultaneously at this time, he would propose an act that would give him the power to rule by decree for 18 months, which we'll be talking about in a second, and in April, Chavez would announce the nationalization of oil projects in the Orinoco Belt, estimated by the state-owned oil company to have some 236 billion barrels of heavy crude, making this the largest petroleum reserve in the world. And of course, since we're talking about the mid to late 2000s, yeah, oil prices in Venezuela have been riding high, and for a time, we're, uh, they, they were only going to get higher. But then, of course, uh, something happens immediately after. And so it is here, my friends, that we're going to have to stop with the history lesson, or rather, we're going to divert our attention in the history lesson, because it is here that we're going to talk about where things went really, really wrong. Oil. Because of all the things that I have listed with Venezuela over the course of this video, it keeps on coming back to two things. Authoritarian populism and sweet sweet oil. Because my friends, Venezuela is what we would call a petrostate. And so you may look at me and go, Stack, I don't know what a petrostate is. What exactly is that? Can you explain? And yes, I can, my friends. Allow me to do so. We are going to be getting into definitions here for a second, but petrostate is a rather informal term, something that is used to describe a country that does not necessarily fulfill each and every single checkbox, but rather something that has several interrelated attributes. Attributes, which I'm subsequently going to list here. The government income of a petrostate is typically deeply reliant on the export of oil and natural gas. Economic and political power are typically highly concentrated in an elite minority. Political institutions in these are usually weak and unaccountable. And corruption is, well, usually very widespread. There is actually a fairly large number of countries in our world today that could be described as petrostates. I'm sure that many of you immediately off the bat probably understand that the majority of the Middle East would probably count as something like this. But in addition to the oil-rich Middle East, you would also have countries like Russia, like Mexico. Venezuela, of course, is on the list. And even Indonesia can sometimes even be considered as that. Though, of course, the definition and who exactly is included in it is going to change depending upon who it is that you ask. And so when we are describing 
these petrostates and their problems, they are thought to be extremely vulnerable to what economists call Dutch disease, which is a term that was coined in the 1970s after the Netherlands discovered natural gas in the North Sea, and that right there is a whole other video of where this potentially would have come from. But I'm going to explain the short of it to you right here. The basic concept of Dutch disease is that in an afflicted country, a resource boom will attract a large inflow of foreign capital. This is something that would then lead to an appreciation of the local currency and a boost for imports that are now comparatively cheaper. For places that don't have a strong manufacturing sector or industry or anything like that from the beginning, this at first may not seem like a very big problem because now, thanks to the resource, they are able to use all of this foreign currency in order to buy things to import in order to be able to raise their local standards of living. Good thing, right? Well, the issue is that this sucks labor and capital away from other sectors of the economy, such as agricultural and, as I mentioned, manufacturing, which economists say are more important for growth and competitiveness over time, as these are things that are going to last longer within the market. Now, why is that a problem, you may wonder? Well, because a nation that is a petrostate is flush with so many dollars and they're able to buy things overseas so cheaply, this means that they're not able to actually develop their industries at home, which in turn means that unemployment could rise and the country could then develop a very unhealthy dependence on that specific export of that specific natural resource. In extreme cases, a petrostate could forego local oil production and instead derive most of its oil wealth through high taxes, specifically on foreign drillers, and not even develop any of the industry for the oil in the first place. It just exists as a kind of leech off of oil. The problem then becomes that a petrostate economy is extremely vulnerable to the rapid and unpredictable swings in global energy prices. You never really know what is going to happen, and capital could either appear or disappear just as quickly. And that is something that describes Venezuela to a T. But if you want to understand just how badly oil screwed up the economy, then once again, we're going to have to go a little bit back in history. Except this time, instead of looking at the politics of Venezuela, we have to instead look at what happened to its oil industry and how it completely shaped the country. First off... Discovery. Beginning in the year 1922, Royal Dutch Shell geologists at La Rosa, which is a field in the Maracaibo Basin, would strike oil. This blew out at something that was then an extraordinary rate of 100,000 barrels per day, something that in the 1920s was an unprecedented amount. In only a matter of years, more than 100 different foreign companies were now producing oil in Venezuela, something that was backed by dictator General Juan Vicente Gomez, who would rule from 1908 to 19. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 1935, an annual production would explode 
over the course of the 20s, from just over a million barrels to 137 million, making Venezuela second only to the United States in total output by 1929. And for an economy that was as small as Venezuela's was, this was a very dangerous thing, because by the time that Gomez would die in 1935, Dutch disease had effectively settled in. The Venezuelan boulevard had ballooned, and oil would shove aside every other sector to account for over 90% of total exports. And remember, at the time they were talking about this, this wasn't even oil companies that were owned by Venezuela. By the 1930s, just three foreign companies, we're talking the Royal Dutch Shell, Gulf, and Standard Oil, they controlled 98% of Venezuela's oil market. Now, it is something that would improve, because after Gomez would die in 1935, his successors would try to reform the oil sector in order to make sure that more of that revenue went to the government, and they would succeed in then passing the Hydrocarbons Law of 1943, something that still allowed foreign companies to operate in Venezuela, but the requirement at that point was that half of their oil profits had to be given to the state. This was such a massive success that within five years of enacting this, the government income of Venezuela would increase by six times what it was before the law was passed. Eventually, as time passed, Venezuela would join Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia as a founding member of the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, in 1960. And through this cartel, which would later include a number of other countries, including Qatar, Indonesia, and many more, the world's largest producers would coordinate prices and give states more control over their national industries. That same year, Venezuela would establish its first state oil company, the Venezuelan Petroleum Corporation, and from that would increase oil companies' income tax to 65% of profits. And then if we fast forward a little bit of time again to the 1970s, we would have a little something called the, um, the oil crisis, in which the price of oil would more than quadruple, and this is something that would put Venezuela on its greatest high yet. What would follow with the state of Venezuela was a unprecedented level of public and private consumption, something that had never before been seen in Venezuelan history. The five-month OPEC embargo on countries that were backing Israel in the Yom Kippur War more than quadrupled oil prices, and this made Venezuela the country with the highest per capita income in all of Latin America. The government during this time would end up spending more money from 1974 to 1979 than its entire independent history dating back all the way to 1830. Increased public outlays manifested themselves most prominently in the expansion of the bureaucracy, and during the 1970s, the government would establish hundreds of new state-owned enterprises and decentralized agencies as the public sector would assume the role of the primary engine of economic growth. At the same time that all of this is going down, the Venezuelan Investment Fund, responsible for allocating huge amounts of oil revenues to other government entities, would serve as the hub of these institutions. And in addition to establishing new enterprises in such areas as mining, in petrochemicals, hydroelectricity, and many other industries, the government would simultaneously purchase previously private ones. In 1975, as an example, the government would go and nationalize the steel industry. And then only a year later, nationalization of the oil industry would follow. And everything that we've been talking about at this point is only referring to the government. But even for the people, for the private individual, their lives were something that were changed forever at this point. Many private citizens got so wealthy during this time period that they were able to simply take weekend shopping trips to Miami, traveling all the way to the United States and then back again, just for the sake of buying stuff because they had that much oil money to throw around. 
And with so many people living their lives and with horrible spending habits like a modern 21st century bad influencer, a growing number of people realized within the country that the rate of government spending was unsustainable. But hey, that didn't really matter, and you know why? Because over the course of 1978 to 1982, as you can see right here, the price of oil surged. And when the price of oil surges, that means that even more money was going to be coming into the coffers of Venezuela. So all plans to kind of tone things down was scrapped at that time as the government was like, well, we, we have a whole bunch of money. Why are we going to not spend it? I mean, we need this in order to maintain our popularity. So of course we're going to do that. But then almost immediately in 1983, as you can see right here, the, uh, the, the price of oil plummeted. And so that combined with soaring interest rates would cause the national debt to multiply by a massive amount. With the fall of the price of oil, this meant that the revenues could no longer support the vast array of government subsidies. It couldn't support the price controls. It couldn't support the exchange rate losses. It couldn't support the operation of more than 400 different institutions that the government operated, not even to mention the sheer amount of businesses that they had bought out in the previous decade. And do you remember that problem that people were talking about with Venezuela before and its institutions and things being corrupt? Well, that and political patronage would only make the situation significantly worse. Some analysts estimate that during this time, as much as $100 billion was embezzled between the time period of 1972 and 1997 alone, and that is it. As the price of oil would plummet globally in the 1980s, Venezuela's economy would contract and inflation would soar. At the same time, the state would accrue massive amounts of foreign debt by purchasing foreign refineries, such as Citgo in the United States. In 1989, Perez, who was elected months earlier, would launch a fiscal austerity package as part of a financial buyout by the International Monetary Fund. And so do you remember those riots that we were talking about before when talking about the rise of Hugo Chavez? Yeah, that is, that, that's what we're referring to here. People who in the previous decade had been living effectively the high life suddenly lost seemingly everything. And so when the government took away all of the money that was funding all these different social programs, people were understandably very upset. And so of course, this massive economic mess then brings us back to Hugo Chavez taking power and the cycle that we've been talking about before of the boom and bust of Venezuela is only something that is going to get worse under him. And although obviously over the course of the 90s from everything that we've been talking about, the price of oil wasn't exactly great for Venezuela, things were very different by the time of 1998 when Hugo Chavez would take power. And so it is from Venezuela's massive oil reserves that Hugo Chavez would end up levering these along with the rising crude oil prices in order to start to provide subsidized goods and services back to the Venezuelan people, cutting the extreme poverty rate by 15%. However, years of economic mismanagement and corruption under Chavez would, over time, transform the more capably managed state-owned PDVSA oil company into something that arguably was a dysfunctional, corrupt, and bloated institution that, instead of being run by competent individuals, was more run by the military and political allies that didn't have any kind of experienced technicians. Chavez, during this time, would also strongly deepen Venezuela's dependence on oil exports, with fuel as a percentage of total exports rising from 71% in 1998 to close to 98% of Venezuela's export economy in 2013. And so do you see where potentially we may be going from here when talking about the boom and bust cycle? Yeah, yeah, as you can see right here. The complete collapse of oil prices in 2014 would then lead to a rapid economic decline for Venezuela. But hey, I'm getting ahead of myself here. We are not quite there yet. The government under Chavez has to first get significantly more corrupt and worse. And here's what I mean. By the time of 2010, 
2010, Chavez has been in power for 12 years at this point. And yet in the elections that take place during this time, the Venezuelan opposition coalition manages to win 65 seats out of 165 in the National Assembly election. Now, this is not something that means that they can take over the government, but simultaneously, it does mean that they are able to break the two-thirds majority that President Hugo Chavez's Socialist Party of Venezuela had held since 2005, weakening their power. Or at least it was supposed to, because before the newly elected members could take office, a pro-Chavez assembly then allowed him to rule by decree for a period of 18 months, something which, during which, he would change term limits, he would redistribute oil revenues, and redraw congressional districts. The redistricting would ensure that Chavez's party would actually manage to retain a majority, so despite losing the popular vote to the opposition party, they would still manage to hold power. Chavez's popularity had slid in recent months, something that was driven down by high crime rates, by food shortages, record high inflation that was plaguing the country. Yet after the results posted, Chavez would go and declare on his official Twitter account that the government had obtained a, quote, solid victory sufficient to continue deepening the democratic Bolivarian socialism. But things are not exactly going to last for Chavez. You see, around this time that Chavez was starting to face more political backlash, he simultaneously was dealing with his own personal issues. He had a tumor removed while in Cuba and would end up disappearing from the public's eye for several weeks, prompting a whole series of rumors about the seriousness of his undisclosed form of cancer. And despite several rounds of chemotherapy, Chavez would announce a recurrence in February of 2012. He was then treated in Cuba with surgery and radiation, leading to speculation about how his health was going to affect the outcome of the next presidential election that was scheduled for October 7th, 2012, and his campaign against his rival, Enrique Capriles Radonsky. But despite all these concerns, Chavez does actually manage to win the election, securing a fourth term for himself. Venezuela's economic future and the domestic security of it were top campaign issues, and the country by this point had been struggling with frequent shortages of basic goods, as well as, again, a persistently high crime rate. But the final vote that we're talking about here was not something that was comfortable. The final vote of the election was 54% in favor of Chavez to Capriles's 44% which was a smaller winning margin for Chavez than any of his previous years, but simultaneously, it was a wider gap than people had actually expected to happen. As this happened, Chavez, of course, promises the public that he was going to keep the country on the path of Bolivarian socialism. Then on October 11th, Chavez would select the foreign minister, Nicolas Maduro, to be his vice president, as rumors started to swirl around the country about the state of the president's health. From there, things would only get worse. Chavez would announce in December of 2012 that his cancer had, in fact, returned. He would go and undergo surgery in Cuba, telling the public that should he be unable to serve as president, that Vice President Nicolas Maduro was going to be his hand-picked successor. Chavez would then miss his January 2013 inauguration, which would spark a debate over the nation as to whether or not he was still legitimately the president. And the following weeks were beset with massive amounts of uncertainty as protesters started to demand clarity on what exactly was going on with him. Chavez would return to Caracas on February 18th and would announce via Twitter that he was going to continue his treatment in Venezuela. But this is not something that would end up lasting because Maduro would end up announcing on March 5th that Chavez had died. In 30 days past that point, new elections were going to take place. And this, my friends, is where everything kind of hits the fan. Following the death of Chavez, what we would see is a heated presidential campaign that would ensue between the acting president, Nicolas Maduro, and the opposition leader, Enrique Capriles. Weirdly enough, during this time, early polls when looking at the entire thing predicted that Maduro had a 
double-digit lead. But when the election actually would occur on April 14th, as it turns out, things were significantly closer than anyone had actually anticipated. As in, significantly closer. Maduro ended up winning the vote with 50.6% of the vote in comparison to Caprillus's 49.1%. And you can see from the image that is behind me here, this is something that came directly out of Venezuela during this time. You can see just how hard the government was trying to twist things in Maduro's favor to give the impression that more people supported him than they actually did. Uh, no, no, this is this is a prime example of a way to severely screw with graphs. Naturally, because of this, Enrique would demand a recount, but no, that, that, that is not something that they were going to do. Maduro had power, and now he was going to keep it. Almost immediately after Maduro goes and wins the election, he uses his authority that is given to him by the National Assembly to enable him to rule by decree. But even the president of Venezuela being able to rule the country by decree is not something that is able to stop the price of oil all over the globe from decreasing in price. And from that, that was going to pull the economy of Venezuela down with it past 2014. Remember when I said this earlier, but oil would account for 96% of Venezuela's exports. So when the price of crude oil would collapse in 2014, the economy would naturally take a major hit. According to the International Monetary Fund, the Venezuelan economy during this time shrank by 30% over the course of 2013 through 2017. Government revenues would naturally plummet along with oil prices, and with fewer U.S. dollars to spend on imports, this meant that there was a severe scarcity of many products. But compared to 2003, the impact of this was significantly stronger. Reliance on food and consumer good imports increased during the oil price boom, and domestic production had decreased after years and years of added regulations, from price controls, from inefficient operations of nationalized businesses, from all these varying things that the government had done to take over the country, and now it was coming back to bite them in the rear. In addition, there was a greater reliance today at that point on the government for the distribution of goods and services than at any point in time previously. Store shelves just became bare as the black market prices for many basic goods like toilet paper or bread skyrocketed. And so what was the answer that Maduro had in order to try and fix the issue? Well, he did what every great country does during this time. He, he printed money. Lots and lots of money. As the government of Venezuela went and printed more money to pay for goods, the value of it, naturally, as printing money goes, became less and less and less, plunging the country into years-long hyperinflation, which was on pace to hit 10 million percent in 2019 and led to a de facto two-currency system, one in which you had the Venezuelan Bolivar, which wasn't able to be used, and the U.S. dollar, which could actually be used to purchase things. And I will give you an example of that. Do you see the, the chart that is behind me right here? Well, that, my friends, is the cost of a cup of coffee in Venezuela in the year 2018, specifically in May of 2018, where a cup of coffee would cost around two million bolivars. Whereas before, in the previous month, in April, the cost had been only 190,000. The three-month annualized inflation rate during this time was 1.2 million percent. That is a level of hyperinflation that we have not seen since Zimbabwe back in 2008, or even going back to Germany in the 1920s, which that right there is probably something that would be its own very interesting video for either one of those. If you want to see any one of those videos, please let me know down in the comment section. And so, okay, the economic situation is bad, but guess what? The political situation is only going to get worse because as the economic situation gets worse inside of the country, Maduro's regime would then go and arrest any opposition political leaders that were going against him and simultaneously shut down any news websites, detain journalists, basically anyone that was criticizing him was going to disappear. 
And this, of course, was going to lead to vast amounts of criticism from the United Nations, as well as other countries like the United States. And this is where sanctions come into play. You see, my friends, it was under the Obama administration that the United States would first implement the first sanctions on Venezuela. In December of 2014, the U.S. Congress would pass the Venezuela Defense of Human Rights and Civil Society Act, which specifically directed President Obama to impose sanctions on Venezuelan security forces who violently suppressed student protest. The president would codify the act in 2015 by revoking the assets and visas of eight individuals in the Maduro administration, and later, the act was extended through 2019, and the Department of Treasury sanctioned dozens of government and military officials for charges including support of terrorism, drug and human trafficking, human rights violations, corruption, money laundering, other financial crimes, and illiberal behavior. Now, I'm going to say this right now because it seems necessary at this point, but many people falsely believe that the United States is responsible for the reason that Venezuela is in the state that it is today. And that, quite frankly, is not true. The sanctions of the United States are not what killed Venezuela. It just really deepened the death spiral that was already occurring. If you have reached this point in the video, then that means that you have watched everything that I have already presented. And that means that you understand just how bad the boom and bust cycle for Venezuela and its oil system was. That was not the fault of the United States. So, okay, even with everything that is happening, Maduro gets reelected to a second six-year term in May of 2018, this being despite boycotts and accusations of wide-scale fraud in a wildly condemned election, including by a group of 14 countries that together were known as the Lima Group, and from this, he is officially sworn into office in January of 2019. Two weeks later, on January 15th, the National Assembly would go and declare Maduro's election illegitimate, and the opposition leader at the time, Juan Guaido, would announce that he was going to assume office as interim president until, quote, free and fair elections could be held. This being in accordance with succession rules in the 1999 Constitution. Guaido at the time, Guaido at the time was quickly recognized as interim president by the United States, by Canada, and most of the European Union, as well as the Organization of American States. But Maduro would at the time retain key support from several major countries, states including China, Cuba, Russia, and Turkey. The resulting political standoff would see an increase in U.S. sanctions against Maduro's government, including targeting his oil shipments to Cuba. This being because Maduro had increasingly during this time relied on Cuba's military as well as intelligence to support him and his efforts to stay in power. At the same time that all of this goes down, threats of sanctions on third parties that were linked to Venezuela's oil sector and the discussion of potential military intervention did occur, but ultimately... The actual intervention or other steps did not occur. Russia during this time, meanwhile, would continue to support Maduro's government, sending Russian troops to Venezuela in March of 2019 and helping the government to evade sanctions on their oil industry. China would, of course, continue to back Maduro's government, offering help in order to rebuild the national power grid and support the failing country. And Venezuela during this time period really was failing. As the country was falling apart, millions of people were fleeing the country itself, with thousands of them fleeing daily by early 2019. As some of the most skilled workers in the country fled the country itself, this is something that would exacerbate Venezuela's economic woes, and its poorly maintained infrastructure then led to countrywide blackouts in March of 2019 that left millions of people without power. Then in April of 2019, after years of denying the existence of a humanitarian crisis and refusing to allow foreign aid workers to enter the country, this being because Maduro believed that aid shipments were in fact a political ploy by the United States, the president president would allow the entry of a shipment of emergency supplies from the Red Cross. 
And remember, as I said earlier, since the situation had been deteriorating since 2014, millions of people had fled from Venezuela, with over 7 million of them now being outside of the country, and 6 million of this being in other Latin American countries. 2.5 million of that are in Colombia alone. Overall, Venezuela represents the world's largest international displacement crisis. The exodus at the same time has caused a regional humanitarian crisis, as neighboring governments also struggle to absorb refugees and asylum seekers. Moreover, because the government has been unable to provide any kind of real social service, Venezuelans face severe food as well as medicine shortages. For many people during this time period, they firmly expected that Venezuela as a state was going to collapse and disappear entirely. But that didn't exactly happen, at least not yet. Despite the increased pressure and sanctions of early 2019, Maduro wasn't just going to hold onto power, he would actually manage to solidify his grip on power. Over the course of 2019 and going into early 2020, Maduro would suddenly implement a whole series of economic reforms, including ending price controls, allowing dollar transactions, slashing the Bolivar currency circulation, as well as initiating a series of uh, murky privatization, things that were going to reduce the amount of government influence in the general actions of the economy and populace. Then in September of 2021, Venezuela would announce the launch of a brand new currency, something that, I kid you not, was going to drop six zeros from its Bolivar notes. And while these rather drastic shifts in economic policy would leave a number of Venezuelans struggling to try and actually secure Bolivars and adapt in the short term, in the long term, hyperinflation is something that would actually subside during this time period. The Bolivar would actually stabilize in early 2022 with annualized inflation falling below 50% which I know that a lot of you looking at me right now are going to go stack. Hold on. It's still 50%. That's not good. And I know, but it's better than the hyperinflation of previous years, even though at this point, still 60% of all transactions were still being done in US dollars and not actual bolivars. However, as you can see from the chart behind me here, going into late 2022, inflation was once again on the rise, not nearly as bad as the hyperinflation that was increasing by 1.2 million percent, but increases of several hundred percent are still not enviable in any circumstance. At the same time that all this was going down economically, politically speaking, the international support for the interim president, Guaido, evaporated. The Biden administration would end up following the lead of the Venezuelan opposition, who would revoke recognition of Guaido as the actual president, as Venezuela's legitimate leader. And as Maduro would manage to hang on to and concentrate his power locally, simultaneously, international events would change things for Venezuela. You see, my friends, going into 2022, Western officials would open up limited dialogue, with limited amounts of Venezuelan oil being able to be sold to the United States and others again after the whole war with Ukraine and Russia would happen. And for that, being something that is still ongoing, is something that, naturally speaking, has thrown the entire oil economy into question. And if there's one thing that the world does not want, it is hazardous oil prices. Still, though, despite the saving grace for Venezuela that was the Russo-Ukrainian war, the future is not exactly happy for Venezuela. It's looking rather bleak. The curse of its oil, coupled with its authoritarian tendencies, everything that I have been talking about and explaining today, well, this is still something that may lead to the total collapse of the state here in the future. But really... Only time will tell. Everyone, thank you very much for watching. This has been Sakui with the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. I appreciate all of you for being here. Remember to like, comment, and subscribe. And if any of the ideas that I presented over the course of this video sound like they would be fun to make into full videos, by all means, let me know down in the comment section below so that I can put them up as polls on my YouTube channel. And from there, decide what it is that we're going to be making next. Thank you very much for watching, my friends. And goodbye. I'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.